Welcome back to Dads on the Air, coming to around Australia on the Community Radio Network. In this program, we bring you informing and entertaining conversations with a wide range of interesting people on topics of fatherhood, family and parenting, and men's and boys' issues, and more. Hi, I'm Bill Cable, and our special guest today is Mike Alsop, and we are set for adventure. Mike is an adventurer, he is an airline pilot with Air New Zealand, a mountaineer, and a man who has done the triple seven, seven marathons, seven continents in seven days. Has also done the world's highest marathon run. Most importantly, Mike is a father, and the, his new book is called High Adventure. The adventure doesn't end when you become a dad. Mike, welcome to Dads on the Air. Hi there. Thanks for having me. So, uh, Mike, with your experience, do you see some similarities between being a leader at high altitude and parenting? I haven't been asked that question before. Um, yes, because it's unpredictable. Um, and I think as a parent, uh, you know, we all go through high points and low points. Um, so, yes, there is. And I think, I suppose, the better leader I become, the less I say. So, um, I suppose, with parenting, especially with teens, sort of the less you say sometimes is a, is a little bit better. Well, I hate to bring it up, but uh, at one point you uh, there were some little white lies you told to your daughter about... Uh, I think there were some goats about to be slaughtered, so you made up on the spot a very, a very good story. I thought. Yes, no, there was. We came in a corner, and there was a fifty cute goats, and they're all super friendly. This is in the Himalayas, and she looked and said, "Where are they going?" And to the Sherpa, and he said, "Oh, they're going to slaughter." And I said very quickly, um, "That's a little village just around the, um, just around the corner." <laughs> And it worked. Well, I guess there are some of those when you're uh, leading high-altitude groups as well. Oh, yes, sometimes. Um, you know, they ask you how far it is and how long to go, and you have to tell a little white lie sometimes <laughs> and tell them it's just around the corner to keep their keep spirits high. Now, to some degree, I, I think we all learn about parenting on the run, but in your own case, uh, sadly, you were prevented from having your father in your life. Do you think uh, a lot of your adventuring is perhaps a, a reaction to missing out on that in your youth? I don't know. I think in some ways, yes, but it's hard for me to put my finger on it. I think, you know, when my dad sort of left for whatever reason he did when he was 10, and I think him and my, my mother were fighting, and he didn't want us seeing that, so he thought it was better not to be in our lives, which is pretty sad. So I think in some ways it made me more determined to be a better father myself, because things have a tendency to repeat themselves, you know, um, bad fathers produce bad fathers and sometimes and I didn't really want, and not that he's a bad father it's probably a poor choice of words but that I didn't want to repeat, to history to repeat itself so I went along and I found uh, I got some help from a little company called Parents Inc called The Parenting Place now and I read some books about being a father and there's a couple of things that really stuck out for me uh, when I was reading those books. And what were they? Do you remember the the important things that for oh, you? Absolutely, absolutely. So the biggest one was children spelled love, T-I-M-E, just time. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be going to the Himalayas. It doesn't have to be going up Kilimanjaro with your teenager. It can be just spending time with them. I drive my kids to school, and that's, that's what I do. No matter what time I finish at night or early in the morning, I get up, drive them to school, and that's our time, just one-on-one, and then they take it in turns. 
and then I go on these adventures with them. The other thing is I I really liked they talked in this in this little book. It's called Who uh, Fathers Who Dare Win. It's a tiny little pocketbook, and they talk about um, having f- family traditions. It can be anything. So. For example, so we have a family tradition at seven years of age, you got to come and see Mount Everest with Dad. It was a rite of passage, it was compulsory, and they all loved it. And then you know, we have other traditions that we talk about in the book. But one of them can be, on New Year's Eve, I don't sleep inside, I sleep outside, <laughs> and under the stars, every New Year's. And it's sort of a bit of a dedication to some friends that I lost in the mountains on New Year's Eve, um, sort of 20 years ago. But that's turned into a family tradition. Now all the kids, no matter where we are, we all sleep outside New Year's Eve, um, rain, you know, rain, hail or shine. I, I'm totally in favour of that. It sounds that sounds great, a lot of fun. And uh, look, a lot of fathers find it hard to tell their kids that they're proud of them and that they love them. I'm guessing you don't find that difficult at all. Uh, it's just part of my everyday language, I suppose. You know, sometimes, I mean, kids are frustrating sometimes, let's face it. And so, but I try and as hard as I can to focus on the good points and focus on what they're doing really well. And I think as a as a pilot, especially you know in the old days when I was uh, doing a bit of instructing, we had a thing where you'd bring you know if you're giving feedback or uh, you'd bring people up, you'd bring them down, then you bring them up. So you tell them something really good that they've done, then you put in your constructive criticism that you need to tell them, and then that's the kept bringing them down a little bit, and then you bring them back up and leave leave things on a positive note. So yeah, I mean kids respond really well to. Uh, speaking to them really, really positively. When you uh, finally saw your your own father again, uh, I think it was about 26 years be- between uh, your time together. Did you get a, any sense from him that he was proud of all you'd achieved? Well, he did say that, but you know the other thing, thing and uh, he said it. He said, "You know, I'm really proud of you, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera, and I was just about to leave for Everest, and I'll catch you when you get back, and we never caught up again. So that was quite that's quite sad. On both our parts as well, but I mean, actions speak louder than words. You know, it's all very well, especially as an adult, saying something, but you've got to back it up with action. Well, when you were growing up, um, have you always set goals for yourself? I mean, I don't know whether climbing Everest was in your uh, an initial goal, but uh, have you always been setting little goals for yourself along the way? Well, yes. So, I mean, it all started when I wanted to be an airline pilot, and that was my goal. That got me out of bed just on fire every morning. I really did. And then, you know, sort of 10, 15 years later, I became an airline pilot. And then I sort of got lost and I couldn't put my finger on it. And what it was is I I didn't have a goal that I was looking forward to. So I started plucking random goals out of thin air. Sorry, dog just barking. Yeah. Um, So I started plucking random goals out out of thin air. And one of them was I was going to run a marathon and I failed. I didn't even get to the start line. And so then I, I just took a huge step back and it wasn't until I realised I wasn't passionate about those two things that things started to make sense. So what I did is I just started letting myself dream, coming up with all these ideas. And and what I was doing was, uh, and I realised it now, as I was feeding uh, my funnel and I was feeding it full of ideas and then I got more and more ideas and that's how I found mountaineering and that's I found my passion. And once you've found your passion, then you're basically you're off. You know, that's, it's, it's really easy to... Yes, well, look, I've never, uh, fortunately, I think, uh, had that desire to climb Everest, but I've always wanted to know what it's like. Did you feel absolutely uh, exhilarated when you got to the top? No. <laughs> when I got to the top of Everest, there was no one there because there was a bit of a storm in the night and it spread people out and a lot of people uh, turned around. But um, I was 
very humble to be standing there and I was very, very scared because you, probably for maybe 15 hours you've been pushing, well, sorry, for 10 hours you've been pushing yourself past what you think is a safe limit. So you're way outside your comfort zone. I knew the most dangerous part was coming down. Standing on the top wasn't a um, wasn't a revelation and, you know, just uh, you know, a big celebration. It was get some photographs, have a look around, and then come down as quick as, we, as I can safely. So looking back on it, yeah, that was sort of when I got off the mountain and I was safe. Um, yeah, I looked back on it and it was, it was pretty... It just seemed actually quite... Incredible what human beings can do, not what I did, what human beings can do, because Everest is just extremely difficult. Well, as you mentioned then, it was a bit unusual because we're hearing a lot uh, these days about the uh, the crowds and uh, having to wait to actually do that last little bit to get on the top. So what, what do you think about the regulation of climbing Everest these days? Well, the, I mean, Nepal is a very poor country and its, it's biggest income is from... You know, selling permits for Everest. So, you know, the other thing is, is it's such a small weather window. I mean, people don't realise, I think, that there's only only probably 14 days a year that you can actually climb it. So occasionally everybody tries to climb it all at once, especially if the weather's been bad, which has obviously happened a couple of times. I don't know, all the good operators, from what I heard from um, different people, weren't actually climbing that day. They were just, um, there were other operators that just wanted to try and get their clients up. I know, you know, personal friends of mine climbed uh, this year, they were long gone before those queues ever happened. So I think it's going to happen again. But you know, people dying waiting in a queue—that's just—that's crazy. It really is. Uh, is it something like rock climbing? I mean, to climb Everest, all these other mountains that you've done—is it recommended if you're scared of heights? <laughs> no, because I'm scared of heights. Um, no, if you're not, a friend of mine said to me, he goes, and he's a world-class climber. And he said, if you're not scared of heights, you don't have any respect for it. Being scared of heights is what keeps you alive. And you learn to deal with it. And so you learn to deal with that. You know, things like rock climbing, it's very, you know, it's a very safe sport. You know, you you don't take um, heaps and heaps of risks. You put in your protective gear or you climb bolted climbs or a top rope or all things like that. And it reduces the risks a lot. Um, You know, it's not like the, the TV program Free Solo where they're, you're climbing without ropes. So, um, you know, from rock climbing, it's very safe. From mountaineering, well, avalanche and crevasse fall, you know, those are risks which you can mitigate to a certain extent, but at the same time, you've got to um, you've got to be prepared to take some risks as well in the mountains, especially with avalanche. Uh, you can't really protect that um, 100%. And we're speaking today with Mike Alsop, who is the author of a new book called High Adventure. The adventure doesn't end when you become a dad. And when you have a look at the book, you'll see a great photo of Mike and his daughter at base camp of Mount Everest. So that will give you an idea of uh, some of the things that are, that are covered in this in this great book. I guess that brings me to the big question. Why do you climb mountains at all, Mike? Well, when I was younger, before I had kids, uh, it was it was a challenge. It was my passion. And basically, I was climbing bigger and bigger mountains. I mean, Everest was the, was the pinnacle of that. But I just fell in love with mountaineering. There's no one around. It's beautiful and peaceful. The amount of work and effort is just huge you have to put into it. It's like a, a, a really big, each mountain's a huge goal and a huge project. And it's extremely satisfying. It's, it's absolutely fantastic. And then when I went to the Himalayas, I just fell in love with the Himalayas. It was, it was just uh, an incredible place. And the Sherpa people and the Nepalese and Nepal itself. And so I wanted to involve my children. So... 
when I finished climbing Everest, I realised my kids need a dad more than I need to go and take big risks on mountains. So I stopped climbing, alpine climbing, and still rock climb. That's a lot safer. And I take my children into the Himalaya. We don't go into the mountains, so to speak, like on the snow and crevasses. We actually just trek to base camp or along the little villages along the way. And we've sort of developed a bit of history there, which is fantastic. Kids absolutely love it. Yeah, and once again, they, they love just uh, having that uh, one-on-one time, I guess. It's, um, that's all a big part of it. It is, absolutely. absolutely. And one another big question I want to ask you, is there really a Yeti up there in those mountains? Now this is getting controversial. Um, so my, I've, I've been around the Sherpa for uh, 15, 20 years, and there is something in the mountains that they call a yeti. And when I asked uh, Lama Gershi about it, he'd, he'd been there since 1953, and I said to him, is there such thing as a yeti? And he started talking to his wife, and they started having a bit of an argument, and I asked his son to translate what they were saying, and he said, Dad is saying the Yeti attacked Mum's friend at the back door 10 years ago, and Mum is saying, no, it was only five years ago. So whether it's a, there's some really good science that's come back um, around the Yeti, and they've had some really good uh, DNA samples of the thing, and it's now believed, and the Western scientists believe it is a a hybrid bear that stands on its back legs, but it's called a yeti. Okay, so there's something out there, and uh, you just mentioned then. Uh, well, you just mentioned. Well, I was say without a doubt, there's something out there, out there without a doubt. There's no, you go there and you talk to the shooters, and if they talk to you about it, because but they don't, because they're very superstitious about it. Uh, but every time they see it, every time they see the footprints, uh, somebody in their family gets sick or dies, so they don't like talking about it. So it's taken me a long time to actually you know, get them to open up. And you mentioned then Lama Gesh, who uh, who did have an enormous influence on you. I, I wonder, this might have perhaps been a father figure for you, but, uh, I mean, he even went to the uh, extent of naming your child, didn't he? Well, he did. He offered to name my unborn child. He knew um, Dylan was going to be a boy, and I, I don't know how he knew that, because Wendy was only six weeks pregnant. Um, we didn't even know. And he did. Uh, he was. But, I mean... Yeah, he was a Buddhist leader, and I think he just taught me to reflect better on myself and just look at myself um, and and believe in the good in people as well and the good in myself. Yeah, he sounds like an, an extraordinary man, and you were privileged enough to uh, to go to his funeral and uh, participate with with all the locals in uh, in venerating uh, Lama Gesh. Yeah, that was really sad. I, I went. I was going to Nepal, and I, I, anyway, and I went a couple of weeks early, and I, I went to his. Uh, his funeral to pay my respects. I was the only Westerner there, and there was you know, 200 Sherpa from the village sitting on the side of a mountain saying goodbye to him. And as he was being cremated in his cremation chamber, there was five huge Himalayan eagles flying over the, the ceremony, which is you know, fantastic for the Sherpa. So believe that he's gone to this next life. Now you you faced all these uh, dangers, and you know you you've overcome your fears, but um, you also had a fear of marriage. Uh, when you met Wendy, I'm just wondering why why you felt like that. Oh, well, I, you know, I knew a lot of people that had got married and had been divorced. And coming from a broken home myself, you know, I was very worried about getting married. I was worried that once I got married, had children, my life would change and I wouldn't be able to go on adventures and I wouldn't be able to do anything and I'd just be coming home and doing as I'm told, which is far from 
what it actually, the reality, you know, it really was. And so, um, yeah, that was that was just some limiting beliefs on my part, and I was probably, you know, um, what's the best word for it, uh, but naive, And but things worked out really well, they really did. And I talk about that in the book, I talk about being worried about getting you know, tied and settled down, worried about having children, and for the first four or five years, you know, you can't really, I mean, we still have adventures, but the adventures are walking around the rocks at the beach, you know, finding crabs or, you know, um, building a little go-kart with a you know, three or a four-year-old, something, you know, small adventures like that. You can't take, you know, the kids, you know, super young away. And then when they turn seven, that's when I took them into, into the Himalayas and, um, and uh, it worked really well. Yes, I guess that's a big theme of the book. And you talk at one stage of uh, the toll that your mountain climbing put on your relationship, but you also um, mentioned that you hadn't showered for a couple of months when you uh, caught up with Wendy, so I, perhaps that gives some understanding. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I hadn't. I was quite proud of the fact I hadn't had a shower for, um, I think, six weeks. I, I, I'd rushed back to the hotel and, and sort of had a, had a pretty quick shower, but um, and, uh, Wendy may be going to have another shower <laughs> for longer. <laughs> well, there's a good influence of your wife, I'm sure, at... Uh, Look, um, you mentioned uh, the airport, that uh, Lakla Airport, where you have to take off if you're going to climb Everest. And uh, I'm just wondering, was with the limitations of that airport and the dangers, uh, was it perhaps worse for you as a pilot that you uh, you knew what the pilots were facing? Absolutely. Um, so I would every time I go there, if there's a storm or there's thunderstorms or there's you know stuff like that, I don't. I just go the next day. You know, you can swap your ticket around really easy. I just go the next day. Or I um, jump in a helicopter and, you know, for another couple hundred dollars, you can actually cash your ticket in and just get into a helicopter. So I'm quite, yeah, quite, um, uh, not, I was cautious about, about that flight. That's probably the most dangerous part of it. But in, in reality, you know, they've been flying in there for a long, long time and they, yeah, they've had a couple of crashes, but they haven't had a crash for a while of, of a, a passenger plane with passengers on board. There was one uh, probably, I think it was the season actually, that ran off the runway and hit a helicopter. That was, that was very sad. And a couple of people got killed um, there. Um, but generally it's, it's, it's quite safe. Now we're speaking today with Mike Alsop, who is the author of High Adventure. The adventure doesn't end when you become a dad. Mike, uh, at this stage of the program, we ask our guests if they'd like to pick a song. Would you like to tell us which one you picked and perhaps why you picked it? Well, I picked um, Jimmy Barnes' Working Class Man because, uh, well, when I was a teen, I loved that song because, you know, it was about, you know, I felt it was like about a song about working hard, you know, not burning bridges, uh, all that sort of stuff. And I actually sung it to my children as a lullaby to send them to sleep, believe it or not. Great. I don't know whether Jimmy Barnes would be happy or sad about that, but <laughs> well, that's a great... They can sing it. We, if it comes on the radio, we turn yeah. the radio up even now as a, you know, a, a, a 13, 15 and 17 year old and we sing it as loud as we can and as proud as we can.
And that was Working Class Man by Jimmy Barnes, which was especially chosen for us today by our guest, Mike Allsop. So, Mike, yes, uh, look, the, the big theme of your book is uh, is about the kids and setting adventures. They had the chance when they were seven, and they had the chance when they were 14. It's a little bit like that TV show Seven Up, I think. You know, they come back every seven years and uh, find out what's happening. Yeah, I don't, I don't know why it's, I've got a thing with number seven. It's quite funny. And so they've done seven and fourteen, although two of them jumped the gun on the uh, the fourteen. But uh, have you got something planned for twenty one as well? Uh, well, I don't, but they do. <laughs> um, they, I think Wendy and I are going to go. We renew our wedding vows every every um, sort of ten years, and we did it in Fiji, um, just on the beach, on a local beach, just with a local community. Um, we asked them if we could just get married at their village, which is really special. Uh, and I think. The oldest thinks um, he wants us to go and renew our vows in um, in Las Vegas. Yeah. So, with Elvis as the uh, as the as the minister, the Elvis Chapel. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Wants us to go. Oh, that's great. <laughs> so, look, look, a big question, but uh, as I say, it is a theme of the book. What does being a dad mean to you? Because being a dad means me. Um, I'm really really firm on the belief that children need a father. They don't need to be a friend. They don't need a friend at that stage. I'm, and, and it's a fine line, and, and I don't want to try and confuse it in any way. I can be their friend later on when they're in their 20s, but when they're young, I think children need a strong father figure, and that's what I aim to be for my kids, really, personally. Yes, I like the way you you say that you don't really... You shouldn't be a friend... When you're a parent, you people shouldn't be afraid to be a parent. So that means setting boundaries, and it means enforcing a bit of discipline, not not physical discipline, but just discipline, and with those boundaries. And uh, you know, I think the evidence is there with uh, with the way your children have grown up. Well, absolutely, and especially you know, I have a thing where I, if there's any issues, I make sure we address them when they're small, you know, when they're tiny issues, so that I'm not having a argument with a. 16 or 17 year old that's wanting to drive a car you, you know what I mean so mm. I try and make sure that we have the small arguments about um, respect um, when they're a lot smaller um, or dis- with discipline or trying hard or that sort of stuff when they're, when they're smaller so when, they, when they've grown up it's already instilled in them is, is what I try and do With a lot of parents having problems with moody and grumpy children um, I liked your solution which was uh, you know well let's go on on an adventure um, but I guess there are some rules for uh, for the types of adventures that you pick. Yeah, so there's three rules. It has to be outside the limits of what you think is possible for them. It has to be safe, so it has to have Wendy's approval, and it has to be good for a community. It has to be good for someone else. Now, Kilimanjaro for teenagers, you know, 14 is probably the youngest I'd take a teenager up there. Uh, on a seven-day climb, I wouldn't go any sooner than that or any quicker than that. It's a fantastic place because... I tell you what, there's no moody teenagers. Mm-hmm. Well, in Nepal, it's the same. You know, they might be moody getting on the airplane and flying um, up to Nepal, but even halfway through that, they're fantastic. And then it's just pure excitement for them. You know, uh, in, in Nepal, is such a you know, you get a Kathmandu and a sensory overload as soon as you get there, and it's incredible, absolutely incredible. And for them, the only time they want to, the internet is to 
take some photographs and upload them to their mates, and then they're just back out doing stuff. It's really neat. There's no moody teenagers on an adventure, I tell you. We've been speaking with Mike Alsop, who is the author of this new book, High Adventure, The Adventure Doesn't End When You Become a Dad. And there is so much in this book. There's uh, fascinating stories of uh, adventures, of climbing Everest, of running marathons, and there's also a wealth of parenting advice, which is uh, which is very timely, I think, at the moment. So uh, make sure you watch out for that, that striking photo on the cover. So it, it really just remains for me now to thank Mike. Mike, uh, thank you very much for being a guest on Dads on the Air. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And look, we'd love to hear from any of our listeners too. You can go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au, send us an email and we'll be in touch. If you'd like to listen to this show again or any of our shows, go to our website, dadsontheair.com.au and you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. And we'll be back next week with another show on Dads on the Air. Dads on the Air.